1: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Frank Vasquez, and this is the What's Up Next podcast. Hey, this is the
0: Vigilante,
3: and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. <laughs> this is Kevin from Financial Panther, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast.
1: Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence.
4: Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Doc, we have three guest panelists today, and we're going to play with this conversation of, is there a legal path to financial independence? Each of them are practicing lawyers, and we're going to give each of them a chance to do a quick introduction before we answer the question. Frank, do you mind giving us a quick introduction, please, sir?
2: Sure. My name's Frank Vasquez. I am a lawyer with Big Law. I've been practicing at the same law firm for over 20 years, and I also uh, teach at a local law school.
4: Wonderful. Can't wait to hear more. The Vigilante. Can you please give us a quick introduction?
2: Sure. My name's The
0: Vigilante. I'm a lawyer and married father of one beautiful little baby girl uh, coming to you from some undisclosed location in central PA. I blog at ivigilante.com where I extol the virtues of rational, selfish thought. That's the I part of the name and thinking for oneself, The Vigilante part
4: of the name. No
0: affiliation with
4: Apple. Kevin, you mind giving us a quick introduction so we can jump into the conversation?
3: Yeah, uh, my name's Kevin. I'm a blogger over at FinancialPanther.com and uh, I'm an attorney also by day. Just a quick background. I started off in big law, went to government, and now I work for a state bar association.
1: All right, so Frank, I'd like to kick it off with you. When we think about financial independence, it seems like we're always talking about engineers or computer coders or even doctors, but I don't hear many people talk about lawyers in this space as much. Do you think the legal profession is underrepresented in the financial independence community?
2: Probably a little bit. There are some lawyers out there that uh, I've interacted with, but I think the ethos of becoming a lawyer tends to be on the spend money side. I think uh, doctors and lawyers are famous for not being very financially wise, and that uh, does hold uh, true for most of the lawyers that I'm aware of. Vigilante, talk about
1: this idea of lifestyle inflation, especially I think if you're in big law, you come out with a fairly big salary. Do you see your fellow lawyers living it up? Are they spending more than they're saving?
0: I think the important point that you just mentioned was if you're in big law. And the reason I say that is I think a lot of lawyers do make big law money and a lot of lawyers do not make big law money. But a lot of lawyers, regardless of where they are in that distribution, choose to try to live like they're making big law money at a young age. And when you're burdened by the student loans that many of us are nowadays, that doesn't really work too well. That's, I think, the real problem with lifestyle inflation that we face is competing with other lawyers who are at the upper end of that distribution, which is really bimodal because there's a big spike in lawyer salaries if you graph them out at about, I think, $70,000. And then a big spike up at the big law profession level, $160,000, 170000 somewhere. And you obviously, if you're making that normal lower salary, you can't keep up.
1: Kevin Vigilante talks about this bimodal distribution. And already within the first few minutes, we've heard this term big law come up. Can you explain what big law is? And I know that originally you would have considered yourself part of it and are no longer. Can you give us some detail on that?
3: Yeah. So big law is kind of the term that lawyers use for kind of the largest law firms in the US. There's kind of like a list of these law firms that everyone knows about if you're in the law world. And so the way when you graduate law school and you go into one of these firms, it's like a set salary. You know exactly what everyone in your year is making. And it's a lot for, you know, a 20-some year old to be making. And, you know, it's demanding hours. It's all about the billables. And it's a hard, hard first job to have. But obviously, it's a well-paid first job for someone coming out of law school to get
1: so, Frank, you know, you say you teach law students. Is the feeling within the students big law or none at all?
2: I think depending on what a lot of, a lot of the students are oriented towards, at least big law to start with. And that's honestly where I started. I felt like I had to make enough money to pay off these loans before I could do something else. As it turned out, I liked where I was and I just kept doing it. But at least somebody that's taken out a bunch of loans is really looking for the biggest salary they can get coming out of law school.
1: Vigilante, we talk about loans a lot and school loans pretty much in many of the professions in the financial independence community. We certainly do talk about it in the physician community, which I'm part of. Is school loans a big issue for law students and and how high can they get?
0: Well, I think for law students, it's an extra large concern just because there's not always a return on your investment you know, with that bimodal distribution, a lot of us are taking on debt at the level where it would only make sense if you're going to earn that kind of big law salary. And for just an example, I know when I graduated, we had a loan exit counseling event of some sort, and we discussed the average debt that everyone had uh, between undergrad and law school debt. And I was actually about $10,000 below that average, I think, and I still had $150,000 in debt at that time. And I did not have a salary to justify that when I left.
2: If we want to put some numbers on this, basically what you're talking about for a private law school, whether it's one of the top 20 or even the top 100 or 200, you're talking about taking out loans of about $60,000 per year. So you're going to end up with about $180,000 in debt. Now, a first year salary for somebody in big law is about that amount of money. And this is actually kind of invariant. This was the same when I came out in the 90s, that it was that ratio. If you go to a state school, though, you may be talking about getting your education for half of that or even a third of that. For instance, I am aware that I think the University of Texas only costs like fifteen or $20,000 a year, and it's the best law school in Texas. So there are wide variations, both in the quality of what kind of education you're going to get, how much it costs and then what you can do with it after that, that you need to take into account before going there.
0: Well, I think I would just point out in relation to that, that that's where you get, I think, the kind of big law or bust mentality because the big law salary does match up pretty well with the debt that we're taking on typically. But outside of that, it usually does not match up well.
1: Kevin, you know, in medicine, we have a saying. We say, what do you call the last person in their medical school class? And the answer is a doctor. And the idea is that whether you're first in your class or last in your class, whether you go to the best medical school or the worst, when you come out, you're a physician and you likely will make a large salary. Is the same true for law school?
3: Yeah, well, it really depends. So, you know, unlike med school and law school, the rankings and stuff matter so much, not just within classes, but also within the level of law school. You know, the higher up in terms of quality of law school you're going to in terms of the rankings, the less you have to do well in the school. But yeah, if you're like at a regular law school and you come out kind of last in the school, like it's going to be a lot harder to do it. You're kind of going to have to figure out things differently than someone who finishes first, you know. So my school was a T20 school is what we call it, right? And so in my school, I finished in the top 15% or something in my school to do this. And that's why I had Big Law open for me as an option to help me pay off my student loans. People who kind of end up in the middle, they didn't really have that option based on my school. They kind of had to go into different routes. You know, They could still become lawyers, but they're gonna make like huge salaries off the bat. It was just way, way
2: harder for them to do that. Yeah, I think that's really true what you're saying. I mean, if you look at what are the big four law schools, the best or most prestigious ones in the country, they're Harvard, Yale, Chicago, and Stanford. If you go to one of those schools, no matter where you finish, you're going to get a good job. As you go down the list and you look at and what you want to be thinking about if you're going to law school is, what if I'm an average student at this school? What are going to be my opportunities based on what this school's reputation is right when I come out? And it's going to vary as you go down the line because depending on what law firms or jobs you're interested in going after, those firms are only focused on certain schools, usually the best ones in their area and then these ones with an international reputation is a way it generally works. And so knowing what your school is, is really important. And knowing what its reputation is, because you can't control that. And the sad fact of the matter is, those schools in the top 10, 20, there are schools that are ranked 125 that are just as expensive. And you really can't afford to be spending that kind of money if the school that you're getting your degree from doesn't have that kind of reputation, if you're trying to get one of these high paid jobs to begin with but there are different paths people can go down. If you minimize the cost of your education, then you're going to have a lot more options, but they're not going to be at these big law law firms, which are looking at these top 20 schools, usually, and then the next three or four that are the best in their area.
4: That's really interesting because we talk about the calculus you go through in order to figure out the path you're going to go down if financial independence is kind of your end state in mind and does a legal practice or a legal profession make sense? It's kind of the question that I'm curious about. So I'll direct this to Vigilante. We've talked about big law a lot and then this kind of rubric you have to go through about where you go to college and where you get your law degree. Where does that play in if you're going to go into private practice or is it a completely different path?
3: So here is the weird thing about law school. Okay, so unlike Things like, you know, my wife's a dentist, right? And so for her, when she, and she actually just bought her own practice. So she came out and she bought her own practice and she's ready to go. And a lot of her classmates could do the same thing. In law, it's really hard to do this because we don't get taught at all how to actually be a lawyer in law school. It's not like in med school where... You, you do residency for four years and you're like learning actually doing things a doctor would do in law school it's like you're like learning how to like read cases and like do law school and then you come out and you really have no idea how to do anything and so that makes it so hard to kind of hang up your own shingle these days because if you do that you just have no idea what to do like how do you even like do anything as a lawyer and so that's why it's just like really hard to, I think, for a new law grad, it seems like, to kind of take that entrepreneurial path, even though it seems like that should be something a lot of lawyers could do, because, yeah, why couldn't you just hang up a shingle and go?
2: Yeah, I agree with that, that it would be really hard to do coming right out of law school. What kind of path you will see is somebody who goes and gets a government job first and then hangs out their shingle in the particular area. For instance, I know of lawyers that, you know, went and, Became prosecutors in a local jurisdiction, and then after a while, they hang out their own shingle and they're, you know, representing criminal defendants and people caught with drunk driving and those sorts of things. And that's a very viable practice. I know other lawyers who have started at big law firms and then have hung out their own shingle at some point later on. But until you got some of that experience, which you're not going to get at law school, it's very hard to pursue that on an entrepreneurial basis simply because you need to have some kind of reputation for being able to do something in particular that other people can't do. And you're not going to get that in law school.
1: Vigilante, you wrote a post and in it, you said every day my mind is for sale and you talked about law as a mental service. And when we talk about entrepreneurship, Talk about technical skills as well as just mental skills. I mean, do you leave law and use those skills to go into other fields, or is it pretty much it is your mind for sale? You're a thinker being hired out to make arguments. I think it's certainly the latter, that when you are practicing
0: law and billing hours, at least. In that circumstance, you are renting out your brain space. You're selling your time, very literally. We run a clock, we keep tabs of how much time we spend on a particular task, and you are paying for that task to be done. And these are generally, it's dangerous to say this, but these are tasks that anybody can do. It's just a matter of how well can you do them, how correctly can you do them. So you're really paying for to borrow another person's brain to do those tasks or to assist you with those tasks. And billable hours, I mean, they kind of have upsides and downsides. That idea of rental, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I I know exactly what post you're referring to, and it it kind of starts very negatively. We're talking about uh, being kind of a mind prostitute. And and that's true. Your work kind of owns you in that sense. Uh, You know, you're, you're at the whim of your client to a certain extent. But on the other hand, billable hours are wonderful in that you can easily justify your worth to your employer based on how many billable hours you produce, how many billable hours you bring in by producing a client for the law firm, whatever. That makes it kind of a very nice economic circumstance for a lawyer to be in, especially a young lawyer who maybe isn't starting with the big law salary and needs to justify their worth as a young lawyer, such as myself.
2: Yeah, the billable hour really is both the bane of a young lawyer's existence and their secret to success or being able to move up the ladder because that is, for most law firms, the way things are kept track of. And whatever you measure is whatever's important. And that ends up being a very important factor as to your success within a law firm, particularly a large law firm. Now, this is not to say that all of law is based on the billable hour, certainly if you're working in government, you're not going to have billable hours. If you are working in small practices, oftentimes you're talking about flat fees. So a somebody who's doing a will or, or a trust package would probably just assign a flat fee to that. Somebody who's doing a representation for somebody who is charged with drunk driving may charge a flat fee for that. But that's on the small firm entrepreneurial side. It's really not the way the business of law works when you're talking about these large law firms and what you can expect as a young lawyer feeling your way through one of these large law firms. And that's one of the requirements that you see on these forms that go to the law schools and descriptions of law firms is, you know, what are the billable hour requirements? And there's a whole industry about how many is too many. And then there's another industry about, well, where you get a bonus for this. And there are websites just devoted to tracking all this. One's called The Vault, one's called Above the Law. If you want to know all about what goes on in law firms, the scuttlebutt, the, uh, the salaries, the bonuses, you can go there and learn whatever you want to know about various law firms. And it's interesting. I've seen over the course of my career that these businesses talking about the law have developed largely on the internet that didn't exist when I started practicing.
1: Kevin, it seems to me you specifically moved away from the big law atmosphere and moved away from the idea of billable hours. Talk to us about your transition out of that world and why you did it.
3: When I went into big law, I did it just because it was like kind of the path I was supposed to take based on how I was doing in law school and I needed the paycheck to pay off the student loans. My problem is I knew as soon as I started that that was not the right environment for me. It's just like, to me, the whole billable hour thing is really, it's like, it's exactly trading time for money, especially when you're an associate. And it's just like, oh, it was just too much for me to handle doing that kind of thing. And so that was kind of like why I like did the whole thing of, you know, entering this whole financial independence movement here and trying to like live lean and pay off my debt was just to give myself those options because I find that a lot of big law lawyers, you know, they kind of get stuck in that because, you know, as soon as you inflate it, it's like don't really have a lot of choices after that. Actually, you know, one thing is I always find that lawyers have a little bit of a weird thing because we're actually one of the only professions I feel like where your salary actually can go down later by a lot, you know, because it's like if you don't go and stick in big law and try to like become a partner, it's like you're probably going to end up taking a pay cut to go somewhere else to go government or go in-house or something. So it's kind of a different thing to think about as a lawyer. But yeah, so my transition, though, I transitioned over into government work, thinking that that would be like more up my alley. And that my agency actually required us to bill hours still, even (laughs) though it was very weird. It didn't have to go to anyone. You just had to bill them and report them every two weeks. And that was like a shocker to me because that was the whole reason I went to government was I thought, oh, yeah, I'll get rid of the whole billable hour thing. This will make it much easier. And that did not happen. I didn't have to like say what I was doing as much, but it was still like, you still had to hit a requirement, a billable hour requirement every two weeks. And so that's why I ended up leaving that one to take this state bar job to try to get more of a regular work-life balance thing. So every time though, I've had to have this weird thing of like, I'm taking pay cuts along the way, even as I advance in my years out of law school.
1: Frank, before we started this recording, we were joking about having a change of clothes in your office. And what these guys have been talking about is that treadmill of having to keep above your profession such that your pay doesn't go down. If you have to leave big law, you might have to take a big salary cut. It sounds to me like burnout would be a real issue in this profession. Do you think the young people you're seeing are facing burnout or not just the young people, but the older people too?
2: Yeah, it's endemic in uh, legal practice that people burn out. I recall going to my 10-year law school reunion and about half the people I met weren't even practicing law anymore. So it's really something that you need to think about going in, that it's basically a commitment until you at least pay off your debts. But it is common um, for people to burn out in this profession. It's just the nature of it, the grind of it. It can take a toll. Certain personalities do better in a law firm environment Basically, if you're familiar with psychological profiling, people with disagreeable personalities tend to make good lawyers and thrive in this kind of profession. And that's just the way it is. It's not so much whether you're introverted or extroverted, but being a little bit on the disagreeable side and willing to like to argue with people tends to make you happier in this kind of environment than I see people who just the toll between the work. There's always a conflict. You're always (coughs) representing a client to get some kind of result against some other client that's trying to get the opposite result. There's that pressure that's endemic in the profession.
0: On the topic of burnout, you have to be careful, Frank, in thinking that um, not necessarily everybody did experience burnout. I mean, I routinely think about my path toward financial independence and how it was kind of pre-planned before even beginning to practice law. But I know that the moment I stop practicing law full-time, a lot of other attorneys are gonna be like, oh, the vigilante burned out. It's not necessarily the truth, unless you want to say that I, did, I burned out back in law
2: school, which is entirely possible.
1: Kevin, what was the response from family, friends, and colleagues when you decided to leave Big Law? Did people assume that you had burned out or what was their feedback to you?
3: I mean, I did burn out, so I I would agree with that. But people assumed I burned out as well. You know, it's just kind of like, yeah, I was there for three years. And that's kind of like the time people start transitioning out. And it's like, I'm going to state government, which is definitely less pay. And some people are like, oh, you know, like, why wouldn't you just go to another firm? That kind of thing. But yeah, but you know, at the time, though, I'm still a lawyer. So it's like, from people on the outside, don't really know, like, the differences between lawyers. So, but once I made this switch over to the state bar... That was like a much different one because now I'm not even in a practicing lawyer role anymore. And so it's kind of like, people are like, well, what are you going to do after this? Because now it's like, there's this idea if you leave whatever set path you're on, you can never get back on it again. You know, and so I'm like, you know, I've got friends who are like, yeah, you can never be a lawyer, a practicing in a law firm again, which, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's kind of the reaction. I guess people think that you're supposed to stay on one path and just kind of go on that path the whole way. Whereas I find that in law, especially as I look at people, it's very twisty and turny as people move along.
2: I think that's right. I mean, I don't think that everybody that leaves big law is burning out. In fact, that's probably not true at all. What is going on is people are seeing what their other options are, hopefully, and pursuing those options, which often are just in a different place. I know people that have become partners in big law law firms and then decided you know, I'd really rather practice for myself. And they go and they start their own little law firm somewhere. For every person that's left a large law firm, there is a different story to be told as to why they did that. And it may not have to do with with just being burnt out. It may have to do with either their other options, their family situation, or many other things. I wouldn't say that. I would say that there's a proportion of people that burn out of a large law firm, but I wouldn't say that everybody that leaves a large law firm does it because they burn out of it. That's a mistaken impression. It's called attrition from running a a large law firm that you're going to hire so many associates and after a period of time, so many of them are going to leave. That's just the way it is. And that's the way it's always been. And so you hire accordingly, knowing that, you know, of, of, of a class of 20 to begin with, you may have 10 after a few years and you may have five after a few more years. And that's normal.
1: Vigilante, I want to transition a little bit. As I was kind of mentioning before, we just don't see lots of lawyers in the financial independence space, or at least not a big part of the community. Do you think there are unique hurdles that keep lawyers from talking about these kind of things?
0: I don't know if there's anything too unique to attorneys or to lawyers that prevents them from considering the concept of financial independence. I think it's a Uh, As we discussed at the beginning, the, the bimodal distribution is kind of discouraging whenever you have already begun to consider the concept. And you think about what are my reasonable prospects here? How how likely is it that I can do this with all of the debt that I'm carrying? I know that lawyers statistically, uh, just as I assume doctors probably are the same, tend to marry later than people who didn't go to some kind of professional or graduate school. And I think uh, we're also kind of delayed in other processes in life as well. Like at this point, I think buying a house. A lot of people I've, I've gone to law school with you know, several years out of law school, are still trying to scrounge up enough to put a down payment on the house that they want. Then you can always question whether that's a problem of lifestyle inflation by too large of a house or problem of uh, student loan debt, whatever. But I think it's unusually common in, in lawyers to be delaying life events and delaying consideration of something like financial
3: independence as a, as a corollary. My theory I have with lawyers and why we're kind of a little bit underrepresented in the financial independence space is that lawyers, you really are holding yourself out to people. And so there's this whole like image thing that kind of comes with being a lawyer. And so, you know, like, you know, I look at myself when I started in big law, and it's like the thing everyone did was you had to get your nice clothes and your nice apartment, all this kind of stuff that goes along with it. And so it's like, when you look at like a lot of these jobs that really are overrepresented financial independence space, like, you know, the engineers and the uh, computer people, they like don't have to like put themselves out in front of like a client and like show like, oh, look how like awesome I am, I think. And so (laughs) that's kind of my theory is that like lawyers, were just like having to show ourselves as like this big shot, you know, and you look at shows like suits and law and order and all, and it shows like these lawyers are like balling out of control. And it's like, that's kind of like this idea that like you're supposed to do that if you're going to be like a successful lawyer. And I think that hurts us in our ability to live on less and what have you.
2: I definitely agree with that. I think most people that are going on the law track are interested in the, the trappings of lawyering, if you will. They do have a history of watching those kind of TV shows have an idea in their head as to you know, being out there consuming at the top of the food chain driving the bmw joining the country club living in the fancy apartment doing all this travel that it doesn't line up that well for the most part that somebody who is thinking about financial independence the first thing they're going to think of is law school it's probably not the first thing that they can think of because it does involve a longer time frame and a longer commitment it's really a big investment on the front end to an uncertain back end and so just thinking about it, you know, and I'm also an engineer. So the engineering side path is a lot more easy to see than becoming financially independent through becoming a lawyer. Although you feel like, well, I will eventually, but you know, along the way, I'll be doing all this consuming.
1: All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I just would like
0: to point out for those who can't see us that we all appear to be in some sort of office. I don't see that anybody has in the corner of their office a bottle of Macallan 32 like they would have in suits and a nice little bar cart. I think, I think Kevin's exactly right about that, that that's kind of a misleading thing that I think some people try to pursue whenever they get into the profession. And I'd just like to add to the whole uh, stack of uh, responses we've already had, that Lawyers are also notoriously bad at math or dislike it, if not bad at it. Now, that's not true of every lawyer. In fact, I kind of like math and I'm kind of good at math. I assume since Frank's an engineer, he probably also is. But it's just a stereotype of lawyers that I think is probably true. And that makes it kind of difficult to kind of wrap your head around compound interests and all of the things that we discuss on our uh, you know, fire blogs.
3: One thing, just to add another point is, you know, I feel like with the whole financial independence thing, there has to be some sort of sense of like humbleness, you know, and like lawyer, being a lawyer, is kind of like you have to not be humble because you have to like show to your client, show to your opposing side, whatever, that you're like awesome. And so it's like, it's hard. It's like a mindset shift to like try to get yourself to think like, oh, okay, I can be less than what I'm putting out there, I guess, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, Kevin, you're interesting in the sense that you've kind of thrown all that off, right? So you left big law, but not only that, but you do a bunch of side hustles, right? So you do side hustles that aren't necessarily always the most glorious, certainly not ones that necessarily take the most schooling. How does that feel? Do you feel like a unicorn?
3: Yes, absolutely. And you know, the things I do, like a lot of the reasons I do it, is to kind of give myself this sense of humbleness, you know? One of my side hustles I do is I deliver food on my bike with these, like, delivery apps. And it's like, I do it because I find it fun, because I'm, like, biking around. But I do it because also it's like, it puts me down, like, as a normal person, so that I can't, like, I keep myself from getting too big of a head, if that makes sense. You know, it's like, I remember a funny story I recently had uh, where I delivered food to a guy at an apartment building across from my law school. And he was wearing a law review shirt, and I was on law review too. I kind of wanted to say, hey, I was on law review too, just to see what he would say, because I probably could have freaked him out if I did that. But I decided not to, but like, there's that kind of humbleness there. It's like, here, I'm like a lawyer, and I'm delivering food to this law student who probably just thinks I'm like a delivery man. And so it kind of keeps me humble.
1: Frank, I'm interested in this idea of humility. You guys are drawing a picture of what we look at in the world of lawyers as confident and spendy and living up to a certain level of life. And yet, I think people in the financial independence space are a lot more about frugality and savings, which are a lot more humble topics. Do you think that people in the legal profession, are they willing to be humble in that way?
2: A few of us are, but it's not the rule. I mean, for me, I always have been on the frugal side of things because when I came into the law, I never necessarily intended to stay in a big law firm, but I knew I needed to get rid of the debt. So I committed to doing it at least as long as that would work. As it turns out, I I liked it. But on the other side of it, you know, I don't consume the way my peers consume. I've always tried to look at it as a general rule of thumb, to whatever my peers are consuming, I should be consuming about half of that and saving the rest of it. I don't think that is the usual mindset of most people in the law, but um, maybe it's because I'm an engineer too, I don't know.
1: Vigilante, I'm wondering if there's also a generational issue here. I like in our podcast to talk about the different generations because I think they bring different skill sets, and different beliefs to the workplace. It sounds to me like what we're describing is the attitude of people going into the legal profession is really a baby boomer and Gen X type way of thinking. You know, grind it out, fight the burnout, live a certain level of life, spend money. It seems to me the millennials and Gen Zers are much different. Do you think there's a reckoning coming to the legal profession? Are millennials and Gen Zers going to want to work the hours and put in the time to be part of big law?
0: Well, I can't speak to big law, but I think, see what you mean. I'm trying to visualize a distinction that's obvious between the generations. I don't know that that exists because in my firm, at least, and everywhere I've worked, Our millennials are some of the hardest working people. This is coming from a millennial, keep in mind, maybe a little biased, but, uh, you know, we're tending to lead in the billable hours produced and the clients brought in and things like that. We're hustling. So I think maybe that law perhaps might be attracting the kind of person who will do that regardless of their generational distinctions, but maybe see that there could be some sort of reckoning in that maybe that has something to do with the reduced interest in law, reduced law school enrollment currently compared to 10 years ago. Maybe it is something to do with that ethic that we all recognize that there will be a grinded out mentality in law. So do you really want to do it or not? There's just maybe fewer millennials or Gen Zers who are going to do that.
2: I think I do see a difference in the generations, although it's it's not really on how hard somebody wants to work, but you do see Gen Xers, you know, I'm a proto Xer, but most of the people that I, you know, interviewed or hired over the years have been Gen Xers and they're, they're more cynical. They do grind it out kind of people. I think millennials are more, they're generally nicer. They're generally more optimistic about everything. They do realize also that it's very possible to move around a lot more than it used to be. And they are taking advantage of that. So you see a lot more movement. The other thing you see now that you didn't see before is usually people would come out of law school and go immediately to a clerkship if they were going to do a clerkship. Now often people will come and work for a firm for a couple of years and then go do a clerkship and then maybe use that as a springboard to either go back to that law firm or go do something else. But I think millennials are more thinking about not that they're not going to stay at the law firm and just do that, but there are all these other opportunities that they might pursue because they can see that kind of a path in terms of as an employer, we have had to adapt to hiring millennials and working with millennials to make it a nicer workplace honestly To the extent we succeed you know we were able to, to hire the best we can but it is something that is evolving over time and it does have something to do with the generations, although that's not certainly not everything. There are issues with the way people communicate.
4: Well, I'm curious, what changes are being made to make it a more conducive work environment for the younger generation that's coming in?
2: I would say things like reforming the way we do parental leave has been a big thing. There is a lot more allowance for remote working. If you go in a, a large law firm now, it used to be it was sort of like everybody was in the office to have FaceTime. That's a boomer idea. Now it's recognized that many people do their best work away working remotely, and that's not a big deal because we have all this technology to connect this all together when we need to be connected. That isn't nearly what it was when I started practicing. Technology does go with each generation. I always uh, say that uh, if you were talking to somebody in the silent generation, which is before the boomer generation, you better go to their office if you want to talk to them. If you want to talk to a boomer, you better pick up the phone. If you want to talk to a Gen Xer, you better email them. If you want to talk to a Millennial, you can text them. But just even knowing how people communicate, I actually sit down with our younger lawyers and go through this as to how best to communicate with somebody older than you that doesn't use the same technology you did. But if you kind of know the way most people in that generation communicate, you can modify the way you do things to make it work for everybody.
1: Kevin, I'd like to transition the conversation a little bit. I like to compare doctors and lawyers, not just because I'm a doctor, but because I think professionally, some of our career path is similar. Right now in medicine, we see a large number of doctors going towards alternative career paths. And if they're not going towards completely non-doctoring jobs, a lot of them are developing side hustles and side gigs. For your average law student who goes and starts practicing and decides that the law is not for them, are there alternative career paths? Are there side hustles, side gigs, things you can do with the JD that still allow you to make reasonable money and be professional?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of stuff outside of the law, you know? I mean, obviously if you go to law school, the idea is you want to become a lawyer, but then I find that a lot of people end up realizing maybe that isn't the path for them, myself included, as I've been continuing along this, I'm finding that law is less and less of the path that I want to take. The thing is, in today's world, it's like, there's just so much out there because of the internet. It's like, there's just a lot of ways to make money, I found. So in terms of specific things, I mean, you know, I know lawyers that have started restaurants. I know a guy who started distillery. I know lawyers who are starting up online things. A lot of people become like interior designers, that kind of stuff. And like, there's just a lot of options out there. You don't necessarily have to use your JD, you know, and it's like, it can be an advantage for some things, but you know, honestly, it's like the whole sunk costing. If you go into law and you find out it wasn't for you, it's like, you can move on and just
1: do something else. Frank, I'd ask you the same question. Are you seeing people leaving law school and not practicing law and using their JD to do other things?
2: Not right away. I would say most people that go to law school are planning on uh, taking the bar and working as the lawyer for some period of time. But over time, people definitely do go off and do other things. I've had associates that go become yoga instructors. I have one that uh, opened a business where she sells what are called cake pops, which are like little cakes on a stick, if you will. It look like a lollipop. One of them fixes motorcycles. They do all sorts of things. Other ones go into more business-related fields, you know, startups, those sorts of things. Some of them become legal recruiters. Some of them work for bar associations, like a uh, financial panther. Here. So there are different options of things you can do with a JD. But I don't see anybody going to law school with the idea I'm just going to get this degree and not practice law unless their family just has a lot of money because you do see a lot of people in law school that are just there because they're not paying for it and they haven't decided what to do with themselves yet, which helps on the competition for grades, but not a path that you would find for financial independence because those people are financially independent to begin with.
4: So let's bring this conversation full circle. I kind of liked what Frank was saying there and he was teasing out this idea of the path to using a law degree in the law profession as a path to something else? Is there a legal path to financial independence? Is becoming a lawyer a viable path to creating a financial independence life, whether you decide to be a lawyer or not for the rest of your career? You have any last thoughts on that, Vigilante?
0: No, but if I could plug my own interests with that, I think there's a really uh, an awareness among lawyers of uh, an important thing that you can do to protect your journey to financial independence, and that is I'm a huge proponent of prenups. I'm sure everyone has read my posts about prenuptial agreements. I wanted to shoehorn that in there because I I think a lot of what it derails people who are making phenomenal progress financially is divorce. Uh, And it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Divorce is a bad thing, but the idea of giving money away to your spouse is not a bad thing in itself. But I sometimes see people maybe living a lifestyle that needs to be supported by two incomes, and then there's suddenly only one they need to cut back, they need to make some difficult decisions just to stay afloat, financial independence is out the window. And that's something I think that can be solved, at least in part, by a prenuptial agreement. That's uh, kind of taking the one-size-fits-all divorce laws and making it into a finely tailored suit that is appropriate for your situation, maybe saves you some money and legal fees, maybe saves you some support or something that maybe isn't really appropriate in your life situation. That's all crucial. And it's something that lawyers, especially people who are involved in family law are intimately aware of. We see it all the time. We're trained to basically think of the worst case scenario. And that is the worst case scenario for marriage is essentially the end of it, premature end of it, I should say. So I think that's uh, something that uh, could potentially help a lawyer actually.
4: I'm glad you brought that up because we talked about that in our divorce episode before, and we gently touched about on or touched on prenups. The way I understand it, if you come to a relationship with assets, then the prenuptial agreement is useful. If you earn money after you get married, does the prenuptial agreement help you?
0: Well, I mean, laws all vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. It's hard to make any blanket statements really, but in my state, generally speaking, the things that you brought in are going to be your separate property anyway. Now, if there's growth on those things, perhaps not. But a prenup can kind of change whatever those base laws are. That's kind of the intention of the prenup. So if you want to say, oh, well, the assets that I accrue, real estate that I buy during the marriage should not be something subject to distribution in a divorce, then you have the ability to say that in a prenup, regardless of what your state law says.
4: I got you. So I think the the message that you're saying is that when considering marriage that it is practical and useful to consider a prenup before getting married and think through work through your personal situation with your lawyer on that path.
0: Sure. And not only for this purpose, really, but also because just having that financial conversation with your spouse to be is crucial. It's something you should be doing anyway. You should be aware of each other's plans. Getting a prenup together just forces you to do that. Frankly, uh, you have to make a full disclosure of everything that you have and you know discuss what you're planning and discuss what to do when things go wrong.
4: Well, thank you for that insight. Kevin, I'll do the same thing for you. I'll give you a chance to comment on the legal path to financial independence. Yours is a, certainly a unique and interesting story. What would you share with our listeners if they are considering the law profession as a path to financial independence?
3: You know, the one thing is, obviously, you want to keep your debt load low or as low as you can because that is going to put you in the hole as soon as you start. You know, law is a little bit different than other advanced degrees. And now we get started earning like a significant amount of income a lot earlier than some of the medical professions, you know. You could start by 22, be out by 25 and ready to roll and make a pretty good income. So if you can kind of live lean for a while and really keep the debt load as low as you can realistically, you know, you can get there pretty fast if you're just saving it and taking advantage of that. Obviously it's like you might not be able to do that forever, you know, not everyone can stay in a law firm or get the big law job, which are the high earning ones. But even a normal, you know, if you get in a government lawyer, you should still make more than your average person. So as long as you're keeping everything lean and staying humble. That you can get there. And so that's kind of the path I'm thinking. You know, you start out 25, you take 10, 15 years, you can be in a good position.
4: Do you have projections on when you will achieve a fire? And when you do, are you planning on jumping ship?
3: You know, I don't really know exactly when the whole set a date type thing just never really made sense to me because things change so much. I mean, If you asked me five years ago where I'd be now, I would probably think Stowe's still law firm trying to make it. I don't know, you know, I'd love to be in a position where I'm like 40 years old, you know, and I'm in like a good, good position to kind of figure out what I want to do.
4: Well, it seems like you're having a lot of fun along the way. So that's what really matters. Uh, Thank you for your insight. Frank, I'll give you the last words on the question of, is there a legal path to financial independence? I think you have uh, have a lot of thoughts on that and you've been doing this longer than anybody else on the call. What is your advice for people who are considering starting the law profession in order to, with financial independence in their sites?
2: If you decided you want to pursue the legal path, I think first you really need to do, go look at the numbers. What schools can you get into? How much do those cost? And what kind of jobs do your graduates from those schools get when they get out? Because you eliminate a lot of schools that way. You either need to go with a high reputation school, it's going to be expensive, getting that big law job that's going to pay a lot of money. Or you can think of, well, I'm just going to get this degree as cheaply as I can, and then maybe get into government, work as a lawyer in something else that isn't necessarily the highest paying, but it's certainly high enough paying to cover that debt and make you go forward. And after that, it is mostly about avoiding lifestyle inflation, that you want to keep living as small as possible for as long as possible, not buying those BMWs. You know, I we drove a Saturn, we drove an old station wagon. When we were coming through, it was all about, my wife is a lawyer too, and it was all about throwing our extra money against that debt and getting out of that hole, because you will start in a very big hole. And you need to have the mindset of having that commitment that I am going to do this as long as I need to do it to get out of that hole. Now, that hole is going to be larger if you go to an expensive law school. It's not going to be as large if you go to a state school or find scholarships or some other things, ways of paying for it, which there are not as many scholarships in law schools, although there are night schools. And some people do it that way that they're working during the day and and going to school at night. But before you even think about that, I would invite somebody who is in college thinking about, well, maybe I should go to law school. What you should think about doing first is going to work as a legal assistant in a large law firm. You will get a job if you go to a big city, it'll be forty-some thousand dollars plus overtime. You will work a lot of overtime. You will eat a lot of free food. You can live like a student, make a lot of money, and see what lawyers actually do. Because I've seen People who do that tend to have a better thought process or are able to plan better. Either they go to law school with the idea they're going to go to a law firm, they know what it is, and they're able to get their mind around it and want to keep doing it. Or they look and see what lawyers are doing and say, nah, I really don't want to do that. And they go on a different path. But that way, you are not making that big upfront investment before you are uh, committing to it, because it should be viewed as an investment and you should from the outside in be thinking of, I am going to be an average student at this school and my outcomes are likely to be average in terms of planning. And then if you do go, then you try to figure out ways not to be average. But I think from a financial perspective, that is probably the mindset you want to have.
3: Yeah, that's a really good point about seeing what lawyers actually do. Because the thing about law school as like a grad program is that it doesn't require any prerequisites other than just being good at taking tests and, you know, having decent grades, which really is makes it so that you can kind of just stumble your way into law school. I mean, that's how I did. You know, I graduated in 2009, Middle of the recession, I couldn't get a job. I had no prereqs to get into any sort of med school or any medical thing without taking more classes. And so I'm like, well, law school's right here. I can take the LSAT and go and do that. And so it's like, you can kind of stumble your way in, you know, you can't really stumble into med school or dental school or anything because you had to know, like, I'm going to take these classes and go there. So that already kind of changes your mindset. Whereas you just kind of walk into law school and then you're like, oh, wait, I'm three years in here. And uh oh, what do I do now? <laughs>
2: That is the danger. It's kind of like a siren song that, that beckons people. But I think you need to plan a little bit more for that, because just because I know that so many people have gone through law school and then decided it's not for them and probably could have done something different to begin with. I mean, you don't know, and people change over time. And you got to, you know, forgive yourself if you go down one path and that doesn't turn out to be the path that you ultimately want to be on. That's fine. That's life.
4: Well, fantastic! I will give you each a chance to promote yourselves and let us know what is up next in your life. Frank, do you mind going first? Where can we find you, and what's up
2: next? The easiest place to find me is, is on the uh, "What's Up Next" Facebook group or the Choose FI Facebook group. Uh, you'll, you'll find me there, or you, or you could look me up. I'm in D.C. I'm sitting in a office on top of Metro Center. If you want to contact me, uh, I'm searchable. I don't have a uh, a website to promote or anything like that. But I'm happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk about a career in law or anything else for that matter.
4: Vigilante, same to you. Where can we find you and what's up next? Well, I think Frank's going to have something new shortly. I
0: think I'm going to ask him, invite him to do a guest post on ivigilante.com to get some free publicity for his brilliant ideas. As far as myself, I don't really have anything major going on right now. Just here to talk about financial independence, promote the general idea I would encourage everybody to visit, obviously, ivigilante.com to follow my story. I'm not quite financially independent, in fact, just barely above zero net worth at this point, but I'm making progress. And it's sometimes nice to be able to see the story of someone who has the hectic life of you know parent slash full-time lawyer slash blogger slash guy trying to sell whatever he can get his hands on uh, to accelerate fire plans because it's a common scenario. I'm a common guy sure I can offer some comfort to some people in similar situations. And also I'd encourage everybody to go visit the, uh, financial independence subreddit that I recently became moderator of.
4: Kevin, last words from you. What is up next for you and where can we find you?
3: You can find me at, uh, my blog, financialpanther.com. You know, on there, I talk about financial independence, all the weird side hustles and things I'm trying out. And, uh, just what's going on, you know, on my path to financial independence. In terms of things that are coming up next, uh, I've got some big plans to try to do some more with entrepreneurship stuff. And so we'll see where that's going. I'm not at a position yet to figure it out yet, but I'm moving along, figuring out what I'm doing here as I figure about my path in the law.
1: So, you know, Paul, getting this conversation together wasn't the easiest. And the reason why is I had a profound interest in looking at the angle of the law profession and financial independence. But the truth of the matter is, there are just not a lot of content producers out there who are part of the legal profession and talk openly about it. So my bet is that we actually have a lot of people in our community who are lawyers, but they don't tend to use that angle look at financial independence. And being in a high-income profession like a doctor, like I am, I wondered if being a lawyer was similar and how the path differed from mine.
4: Yeah, it did seem a a little bit different for the legal profession but I'm still not quite sure I completely had my head around it. And even the panelists had theories, but they didn't really know either. I heard from a recent conversation we had that there are something like 75 physician bloggers in this financial space. And when you go look for that many law bloggers that are in the financial space, there are only a few. It's less than 10. And if someone knows better, feel happy to correct me. But I think some of the theories were sound in that it doesn't have quite the indelible meaning to your path to financial independence in the same way physicians does or being a physician does. And there is an inherent risk averse behavior and approach to life. When you're a lawyer, it's really hard to get lawyers to talk openly about anything unless you are in a private chamber in their office and they're talking about your situation. And it's this billable hour kind of scenario they're not allowed to talk generically. It's difficult. So I see how that would be difficult to put yourself out there as being an authority when they're trained to be skeptical and they're trained to not talk in generics.
1: Yeah, I think there's also a cultural difference. As I think a few of them mentioned, culturally, lawyers are supposed to present themselves in such a way. And it's like the driving the BMW, having the nice clothes, being the authority. And it's hard sometimes to mesh that image with the idea of saving and frugality and some of the carefulness that I think goes along with the financial independence community. So that doesn't mean that lawyers don't do that thing, Mm -hmm. those things it might be that they just don't promote openly that behavior. One thing about the conversation that also really caught me that I had never thought about is, you know, lawyers are constantly worrying about or could constantly worry about decreasing their wages. I mean, this idea that you have to enter big law, get on the treadmill and keep moving forward is new to me. And again, I always compare it to my life, but kinda as a doctor, once you go and work as a doctor, there is a baseline salary you're gonna make. It depends on which specialty you're in, but you know if you're an internal medicine doctor, or family doctor, medicine doctor, you're gonna make a certain amount, and it generally won't fall too much below there. Uh, There's a wide variance in how much you can make. So if you wanna work harder and work extra on weekends and really push, you can make more than the average, but very few people go below the average. So it seems to me that, especially with lawyers, you do have this dichotomy. You have the big law group, the group that's making astronomical salaries, and then you have a lot of people who kind of do mediocre in the profession, and, and maybe the middle ground is a little bit less.
4: Yeah, it's interesting that what you just characterize as mediocre or average or the other side of the bimodal graph is more akin to the incomes that I was associated to as being an engineer or a computer guy or software engineer or whatever. You're kind of in the same category of earning potential there. However, you don't have to get the extra degree or any degree in some cases. So it's interesting if you're thinking about earning that type of income, you should only do that and be a lawyer if you really want to be a lawyer versus, okay, well, I think this is big earning potential here. And then you find yourself not enjoying the big law and all the hours and all the extra work it takes and the pressure that's associated with earning that sort of income. And you made a comment a second ago about the status of being a lawyer and the the confidence that you have to exude physicians have that as well. So it's interesting that there are still 75 plus physician bloggers out there and they still have the same pressure and expectation to live a certain lifestyle and not be frugal. Yet still in law, there's a different culture. There's some difference there. And I'm still not sure I exactly have my finger on it and we're probably not going to answer it here. I'm just thinking through that for somebody who is considering path, maybe they already are lawyers, what are they going through to process being frugal yet still being in this high status position?
1: Yeah. You know, one thing that physicians have had is we've had a few originators who started talking about this in a big way, right? So we have the white coat investor, we have Mm -hmm. physician on fire. We have a few people out there who really got out and put the word out early on in the financial independence movement. So I think for Legal careers, you have the big law investor, and I think that's a big voice in this space, but maybe you just don't have the number of people yet who've made a big enough impact to start drawing other community members out. That might be the difference. One thing that I really also took from this conversation is what Frank said at the end is, you know, if you're thinking of a legal career, go work in the legal profession before going to law school for a while. You'll make decent money and you'll actually see. What it's all about. And I think if one of the big things I took from this conversation is if you think this is going to be your path, that's the way to go. Because as Kevin said, you don't really need many prerequisites to get into law school. It's not like one of the more scientific fields or even one of the more engineering fields where you have to be more math oriented or more science oriented. You can come into law school more as a generalist and then you go to law school, and I get the feeling that. Three years of law school doesn't really give you a feel for what practicing law really is. Whereas like when you go to medical school, by the time you're done with medical school, you have a pretty good idea. You've done rotations, you've worked in the hospital, you've gone to some outpatient clinics, you kind of get that. And so I was impressed with that kind of level of the conversation. I think it's really important if you're looking at the law profession as a path to FI, go out, learn more about it. Don't just fall into that career because it's a hard career, especially if you're going to go the big law route. There's burnout. You're going to work really hard. So you better kind of know you're going to like it before you go.
4: Yeah, before you commit, basically go through an internship is effectively what they're suggesting. It's not a formal internship, but you get a really good taste. I thought that was really good advice. That's something I took away as as well. And the last thing I took away was this that Frank mentioned kind of in passing, but advice that I often share is live off of 50% of your income. If you can do it at 40, you can do it at 80, you can do it at 180. Whatever your income is, if you make it an automatic habit to live off of 50% of your income, regardless of your profession, that is a fantastic path to financial independence.
1: All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Frank Vasquez, the vigilante from ivigilante.com, and Kevin from financialpanther.com.
4: Doc G and I are going live this Friday at 12 p.m. noon central to discuss this episode. To get on the live stream, join our Facebook group, the What's Up Next podcast, and look for notifications on when we go live. You have to be a member of the Facebook group to be a part of the live stream. We'll discuss this episode, give you some insight on what episodes we're currently working on, and a little sneak peek on the upcoming episode for next week. We look forward to reading your comments, engaging with you further, and seeing you live this Friday at noon on the What's Up Next Podcast Facebook group.
1: That's a wrap. Just in time. A lot of, uh, yeah,
0: you,
4: you finished up here.
3: <laughs> yeah what 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 time is it? Where are you
0: living? <laughs> why didn't he say that during the podcast?
3: <laughs> I do not want to out you and be like, hey, why are you drinking that Miller Lite? I, <laughs> know, I
1: was trying to
2: tempt you the whole <laughs>
1: Kevin. Yeah. We were trying to like throw you off. So he doesn't time. have yeah. any <laughs> cardiac. Oh yeah, I'm like, isn't it in the morning right now? It's Eleven o'clock.
3: <laughs> no,
0: it's it's noon. It's all
1: right now.
4: What's the question that that you want to propose?
1: I, I I don't have one. That's what I was going to talk to you about. I think the question is is um is there a legal path to financial
4: independence? Uh, I like not, that because not, there's kind of a not, play on words.
2: Yeah, not <laughs> legal like legality, but like opposed to an illegal power. path. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. Not legal like legality, but plenty legality. of
4: both. Uh, no offense to those listening. When people first think about lawyers. uh, entertainment is not the first thing that comes to mind. So (laughs) Uh, you probably don't know that,
0: but I don't know that I have anything of value to add to that. I just assume that uh, your agency must be run by a dinosaur like Frank.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. It was just, it was just like such a weird thing. Like you just roll in there. They're like, Oh yeah, here, you got to like, you (laughs) these to nowhere. It's, it's (laughs) literally not going to anyone.
0: (laughs) Everybody calling him out on being old. (laughs) (laughs)
2: I resemble that remark Um, (laughs) I will put a postscript to it that I have three sons none of whom has any interest in lawyering (laughs) you may take that for for what it's worth but uh, (laughs) they have two parents that are are lawyers and they've uh, generally decided nah they're going to do something
4: different you got anything brewing uh, new in your life that you'd like to talk about I do not. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're just uh, riding the path that was appropriate for you and enjoying it.
2: Yeah, yeah. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.